My name is Dan Kent. I am a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. I also lead the uh, Thursday evening ministry called The Refuge. And if you're in the Twin Cities area here, and if you are, uh, you know, as soon as the quarantine is over, come on out and check us out in The Refuge on Thursday evenings. We play music, we share a meal, uh, we uh, have a message, and then we have support groups. It's a fun time, so come and check us out. Greg is not here, and so several people are already asking on YouTube how Greg is doing. And um, I, I am here to report that he's doing good. He's recovering from his procedure. Uh, but you know, Greg, his biggest problem is going to be resting. And I imagine right now, Shelly is probably chasing Greg around the house with a tranquilizer gun just to get him to calm down to rest. Uh, but Greg, he's getting better, and he will be doing cartwheels on the stage in no time, I'm guessing. So that's the update on Greg. Since Greg is out, it's given me the opportunity to do my first live stream sermon. And um, uh, all I can say is if I do another live stream sermon and I don't get a haircut between now and then, I'm going to start looking like one of those little keychain troll dolls. And I'm a little worried about that. So I hope this quarantine ends and I can get a haircut. But I'm so thankful that we have the technology where we can continue to do this. And I'm grateful that you have invited us into your living room. Although I kind of think you uh, maybe should have cleaned up a little bit before you invited us in. No, I'm kidding, of course. I'm here today to do a message that we are entitling, Your People Will Be My People. And it comes from the book of Ruth. And uh, I don't know what it is. There's something about the matrix of everything that's happening right now with the quarantine and with Greg's sermon messages over the last few weeks, which have been just really great. But some, for some reason, I've been thinking about the book of Ruth and it just keeps coming up. The book of Ruth. Check out the book of Ruth. Read the book of Ruth. And finally, I'm like, all right, fine. I'll read the book of Ruth. It's just that every time I read the book of Ruth, I always cry <laughs> and I can't help it. I, I, I don't know why. I just, it, this book makes me cry. Uh, and I encourage you to read it too. And maybe you won't cry. I don't know. I, I can't make any promises. But uh, uh, I encourage you, it's only four chapters and it's, it's, uh, it's found in, in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Judges and right before 1 Samuel. So check it out. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to summarize the story uh, and I've done it in a very selective, calculated way so that I won't cry on stage here because I just don't feel like we know each other that well yet. So, uh, uh, so I'm going to share the story of Ruth and then what I want to do is I want to unpack a couple themes that I found when I finally sat down to read it that I think are just profoundly pertinent to where we are today and really in faith in general, but in particular where we are today. And then don't forget, afterward, we have a Q&A. And so please, if you're thinking of questions, we'd love to get your questions. We're going to have a Q&A with, with myself and Paul Eddy and Oshita Moore, and I'm looking forward to that. So please send in your questions. The phone number should be on the screen. The story of Ruth starts off with a famine. There's a famine in the land of Judah, and, uh, and there's this one family in the city in Judah, the city of Bethlehem, which you're familiar with. Uh, there's this family in Bethlehem. It's a husband and wife and two sons, and they are getting impacted pretty severely by this famine. So they're like, we got to get the heck out of here. So what they do is they leave Judah, and they go to this foreign city called Moab. And because the famine isn't 
impacting Moab like it is in Bethlehem. And they do this, which is a pretty big move back then to, to do something like this, but they do it. And you know what? It, it kind of turns out pretty good. It starts off wonderful. I mean, the two boys, they come and they find Moabite wives right when they get there. I mean, I don't know what they were doing wrong in Bethlehem, but when they get to Moab, suddenly the women just love them. So... Uh, the first lesson here, guys, is if you're single and it's not working out for you, maybe go to some strange foreign land, you know, like Wisconsin or something. You know, maybe you might find something that works out there. Uh, so they go there and they find these wives and everything is going so well. And then, as happens in life, as soon as things seem to be going well, everything kind of falls apart for this family. And the husband dies first. And then shortly after, the two sons die. And they don't just die, but they die before they're able to have kids. And so all that's left of this just previously robust family is the mother, who is uh, Naomi, and then the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And, and that's all that's left. And Naomi, the mother, is just devastated by this because she's just lost so much. She lost her husband. She lost her boys. But since there is no children, she also lost her sense of purpose. She lost her sense of future and legacy. And she's just feeling profoundly empty in this first chapter of, of Ruth. And in fact, the, the tragedy just shakes her so much. It totally reorients her identity and her view of herself and her view of God. She thinks that God has turned his back on her. And she is so disrupted by this that she changes her name. She changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And, uh, and so it's just totally, totally blown apart. Meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, the famine ends. And there's food again. And since she has nothing left of her family, she decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem. And, uh, but she still has these daughters-in-law. And, and so she sits down with them and she says, listen, um, it, it's really hard for us as widows. And it's, it's 10 times harder to be a widow in a foreign country. So what I think would be wisest for you would be if you would go back to your own mother's and maybe you can find new husbands and start over, which is very prudent advice. And Orpah takes that advice and she goes back to her mother. But Ruth does not comply with this advice. Ruth just takes this incredible stand of loyalty to uh, Naomi. And in one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, she says this to Naomi. And I'm taking Greg's uh, advice and using my Bible. Uh, I hope you're impressed. Although I'm using little cheaters because, well, I'm a little rusty. <laughs> so this is from uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth replies to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Wherever you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Isn't that beautiful? Just this profound faithfulness to her mother-in-law like this in this time when her mother-in-law is grieving so profoundly. I just think that's so beautiful. And now Naomi, of course, argues with her because this is just not the prudent thing to do. But Ruth has just this sense of conviction and this faithfulness is so strong. And she has such a fire for this commitment for her mother-in-law that finally Naomi says, all right, fine, you can come with. And they both go back to Bethlehem to look for food and shelter together. Uh, in that, uh, looking for food, Ruth finds this field. 
It's a barley field, and this is during the peak barley season. And so the harvesters are out there harvesting the barley. It's just this perfect time to be there. And what Ruth was doing is, is she would follow the farmers as they are harvesting the barley. And she would follow a ways behind, and she would pick pick up whatever fragments or scraps she could find along the way, and she would take those back to Naomi. And she did this for multiple days. And uh, it didn't take long for the, the owner of the farm, a guy named Boaz, uh, Orpah and Boaz, two of my favorite names in the Old Testament. But Boaz, uh, it says, notices Ruth. Uh, and by notices Ruth, uh, he thought she was very beautiful. And um, in fact, the Hebrew word there is ulala, is the Hebrew <laughs> technically. So this is great. I, I can just assume people are laughing at my jokes because I, I, I don't get the feedback. Although I, I got a couple laughs here, so that, I appreciate that. Uh, so because he thinks she's beautiful and uh, he, he asks around about her, like, who is this lady? And he finds out about her loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi. And he's just blown away by that. Here's this Moabite woman who is this faithful to this Israelite woman. And, uh, and this just really touches Boaz's heart. And he just unleashes this generosity towards Ruth. And it's, it's beautiful. He, he um, uh, tells her, why don't you come back here every day? Don't go to other farms. You can come here every day. In fact, if you're thirsty, my farmers have some jars of water. Help yourself to the water. And in fact, what do you, this is such a small hall. Here, take some extra barley. And he loads her up with extra barley. And you know, you should, you should join us for dinner too. Since you're here, you might as well have some dinner with us. And you got to try this bread. Come over here and try this bread. No, dip it in this oil here. It's just wonderful. And so Boaz is just really, really into this, this, this woman. And uh, so Ruth had just this great experience with Boaz. She goes back to Naomi to tell Naomi about this encounter that she had with Boaz. And all of a sudden, Naomi, just kind of fills with hope because it just so happens that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, which means under this cultural structure back then, if Boaz were to marry Ruth, then Naomi's family would be redeemed. Naomi's family would have a new purpose and a new direction. And, uh, and so she's just hopeful that maybe this could happen. And Ruth, being, you know, proactive and forthright like she is, she gets all dolled up. She puts her perfume on. She puts her good dress on. And she goes directly to Boaz, who's taking a nap on the threshing floor. And, and, uh, and, and she says to Boaz, listen, I want you to marry me so that we can redeem my family. And when she says this to Boaz, to redeem my family, Boaz again just looks at that loyalty to the family. And he declares that Ruth is a woman uh, of noble character. And he says, yes, I will marry you. And after some complications, they do get married and they end up having this child, which of course is a wonderful thing for Ruth and Ruth celebrates this. But it's interesting that the story really highlights Naomi's reaction to this child. It says that the child renews Naomi's life. The child sustains Naomi in her old age and it gives her life and her future purpose. Uh, and the child heals Naomi's heart, which is, is interesting. Isn't that a lovely story? It's such a beautiful story. And, you know, the Old Testament has a lot of stories that don't have such beautiful endings. And it's so nice to have a story that ends beautifully like that. Uh, now, I don't know why I get emotional when I read this story. I'm sure part of it is, is personal, and we probably all bring personal stuff to it. But, 
you know, I can't help but when I read this story of this young woman uh, who is managing this traumatic situation uh, in this male-dominated culture and she's taking care of somebody who's more vulnerable than her, uh, when I read that, I, I think of my, my own mom who uh, was pregnant with me when she was very, very young. She was pregnant when she was 13. This is out in the country. And uh, it's a very dysfunctional situation. In fact, the situation for my mom got so dysfunctional that she ended up taking me and we fled to the city, which the country to the city, it's like going to a foreign country. It's just a very different type of, of experience. And she took all of these jobs, whatever jobs she could take to, to make ends meet, she would do that. In fact, she even worked in this coal yard I mean, talk about, I mean, this is like male society on a whole other level. I mean, she was like the only woman there uh, emptying these coal cars and she'd come home all black and with her eyes kind of clean so she looked like a raccoon almost. And, uh, but she, she did just whatever job she had to do to make ends meet. She just hustled and she eventually got her education. But during a lot of that time, she managed by, to get by with just a junior high education. And, and I look at Ruth and all of the things that she had to do to uh, serve Naomi. And I do, I think of my mom and, and all the stuff that she had to do to, to take care of me. And it just makes me feel lucky that I have that strong female presence in my life. Uh, but I think there's more to the story than just that personal element. I think the story also touches on a couple human desires that we all have. And, and they're very important desires that we have. And the story really kind of touches on those. And what I want to do is I want to take a look at those two desires. The first one is faithfulness and the second one is solidarity. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go deep here. Uh, I'm, I mean, I've got my headlamp on and I've got my archaeological tools and it might get a little deep. And so if you have questions during this, please write them down for our Q&A after the service. Faithfulness. When you look at Ruth's story and you read this, it's only four chapters, so please read it this week. Uh, you can't help but notice her faithfulness. It just jumps off the page. And you look at that and you think, that's so beautiful. And we all want people in our lives to be faithful to us like that. Uh, I mean, who doesn't? We all want our loved ones to be loyal to us. But I think also, more than wanting other people to be loyal to us, we see Ruth and we want to have that faithfulness for ourselves. We want that faithfulness inside of us for other people. Because when you see it, when you see faithfulness that's so beautiful and so profound like that, you can't help but notice the strength of character that's required for that type of faithfulness and the power of conviction that motivates that type of faithfulness. And we see that in Ruth and I think that we want it. And we want it partly because I think we were made to have that kind of unwavering commitment to each other. In fact, I would say that when we are faithful to one another in this way, that is when we image God, the God that we were made in the image of, best. It's faithfulness to one another. Um, and, and really, uh, faithfulness, this idea of faithfulness, as it's talked about in the Bible, really emerges out of our relationship with God. Uh, in, in fact, um, the word faithfulness is a covenant word. And uh, it, 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 it's related to faith in a very intimate way. These are two important elements of any covenant relationship. In order for any type of covenant relationship to work, each partner has to have confidence or trust in the other. That's faith. But they also have to be trustworthy to the other. They have to do what the covenant stipulations say they're going to do. And that's the faithfulness part. And when you read, when you read the book of Ruth, you see that faithfulness toward the expectations of relationship that she has with Naomi. 
Naomi. And Naomi is trying to dissolve that, trying to say, no, you just go back to your own mom. And, and Ruth is like, no, I'm, I'm committed to you and I'm going to stick with it. And just that resolve that she has is such a beautiful covenant resolve. And it's the same type of resolve we're supposed to have toward God as well. And so that same covenant resolve that Ruth has to Naomi, we should have for our brothers and sisters, but also for God. Um, and part of the reason why I think the story of Ruth has been just nagging me over the, the last you know, few weeks is I think that this idea of faithfulness hasn't been talked about as much as I would like to see it talked about. Somewhere during the Reformation, everything changed in our focus. During the Reformation, there was this huge push toward faith in God. And, and talking about and exploring the nuances and the intricacies and the beauty of faith in God and faith in God's grace. And, um, and that's an important thing. And I'm so glad that, that we, we dive deep into that. But it seems like a lot of people have emphasized faith in God and faith in God's grace to the extent that they've minimized the importance of faithfulness. It seems like people, some people think that if I have faith in God's grace, then it doesn't really matter if I'm faithful because God's grace will cover my unfaithfulness. Uh, and I think, I think that that's, uh, dis, well, what would I say? It's, it's unfortunate that, that that's happened. But I think that that has happened. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate because God calls us into faithfulness. And uh, God in the Bible is looking for a people that he could put his trust in. But we've kind of come to the point now in this discussion of faith and faithfulness where even the idea of God trusting in people might strike some people as strange. God trusts people? What is that? Uh, and, and that might sound strange to some people. But it shouldn't. Uh, we have a really unique God in, in this faith. Uh, the God of the Bible is, is a God who enters into covenant relationships with people. I mean, he just stoops down and he enters in at our level with, with uh, his created people. He, in order to do that, in order to give this real covenant effort toward us, he has to give us authentic, genuine say-so, power. He has to give us the power to choose between curses and blessings, it says in the Old Testament. He has to give us the power to choose between fire and water, between death or life, between rebellion or faithfulness. And that's the power that he gives us. And, and that's a very unique God. I imagine the gods of the other religions kind of looking at our God thinking, why are you doing that? <laughs> Why not just make them do what you want them to do? It's so much easier. I mean, this is a headache. Look at this. Look at the, the chaos that free will causes. But that's our God. Our God is, is unique and he has a unique mission. He wants to have authentic agape relationship with us. And that requires this genuine say-so. And, and, but he wants to have a strong relationship where everybody willingly enters into this relationship. And what that requires is it requires faith in our covenant partner, that is, trust that our covenant partner is going to be loyal to his promises, but it also requires faithfulness on our part where we strive to be faithful to the expectations of the covenant that God has for us. Uh, and and the synergy between faith and faithfulness is so tight that the Greeks, they only had one word for both ideas. The word is pistis. And, and you can't tell which the writer means until you look at the context of what the writer is saying. They use the same word for both. That's how intimate those ideas are. 
faithfulness is sort of what God is chasing from the very beginning in the Bible. You go back to Adam and Eve and that's what he wants is he wants this people to be faithful and he leaves and gives them this faithfulness test and we know how that goes. It doesn't go the way that God wanted. And over and over and over again in the Bible, you see God frustrated, God grieving, God regretting the fact that his people are not faithful. And, and that's what he wants is a faithful people. It's, it's the foundation of his entire mission here. In fact, um, it's not that he's surprised when we're faithful. He's surprised when we're unfaithful, which just kind of blows my mind. There's, there's a few points in the Old Testament where the text records that God is surprised by something. And in each of those cases, he's surprised at unfaithfulness. Uh, my, my, fam- uh, my favorite example of this is in uh, Isaiah 5 where God says that I am like a gardener and, and humanity is my vineyard. And, uh, and I've taken such good care of my vineyard that I thought for sure that it would produce grapes. But instead, it's produced this wild fruit that's nothing like the grapes that I intended. And, and he's surprised by that because I really thought that they were going to be faithful, but instead they became unfaithful and wild. And, and so not only is God seeking faithfulness, but he expects it. He, he expects faithfulness in us and he's surprised when we're not. Faithfulness is the foundation of the entire conflict that God has with Satan, I believe. Uh, when you look at, think of it this way. If faithfulness is the entire goal that God has for us and the entire reason that he created the world, then faithfulness is going to be the most important thing for Satan to attack. And sure enough, when you look through the Bible at the few places where you have these encounters with Satan, in every single case, the encounter revolves around this question. Can humanity, as God created them, remain faithful to God or not? You go to Adam and Eve, you go to Job, you go to Jesus in the wilderness, and that's the question. Will humanity remain faithful to God or not? That's the question that that the whole spiritual conflict seems to be revolving around. And Satan, of course, in all of these cases says, no, humanity can't remain faithful to God. No chance. But God in each of these cases seems to be saying, yes, they can. Humanity can remain faithful. And this begs the question, what do you believe? Do you believe that humanity can remain faithful or not? Um, Now, you might be thinking it's a little more complicated than that. (laughs) You might be having some apprehensions about affirming uh, this idea that that God thinks we can re- remain faithful. Uh, and, and I think that there are a lot of things that sort of keep us from agreeing with God on this. And, and I want to explore some of those uh, right now. I'm going to offer three kind of hindrances to accepting this idea that humanity can be faithful. The first hindrance is that there's this worry. As soon as you start talking about becoming trustworthy or becoming faithful, there's this justified worry that we could be going down a road of works-based righteousness. That's the, the term that you might hear thrown around. In other words, we might be trying to earn our salvation. And this is a legitimate concern because the Bible is very clear that this is a danger that we need to be aware of. And uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is sort of the, the classic text on this. Uh, Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul is saying that your salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do that can merit your salvation. If you're saved, it's only because God made a decision to save you. That's sort of one of the foundations of Christianity is salvation is a gift from God and we can't earn it. So many religions, you have to earn your way up hierarchies. But that's not Christianity. Christianity, salvation is a gift that just overflows from God's love. And we all agree with that. But some people uh, draw this inference that really confuses me and I, I've never really understood it. They, they take that truth that um, salvation is a gift and we can't earn it. We can't earn it. And they infer from that that therefore we must not be able to do anything good on our own. And, and that's confusing because, um, well, it, it assumes that if we could do something good on our own, we would merit salvation. But that's the whole point that Paul's making is that you can't do anything to merit salvation. And so this idea that since we can't earn salvation, we can't do anything good on our own, I think that's exactly backwards. And I've been thinking a lot about this and maybe I'm wrong and please correct me if, if you think differently. But I just think the opposite is the case. If it's true that salvation is a gift and there's nothing that we can do to earn it, then it doesn't matter how many good things we do. It doesn't matter how many great accomplishments we can make in the faith. It seems like if salvation is a gift, we can become faithful. It's just that that faithfulness isn't what saves us. Uh, in fact, that makes sense because the very next verse after uh, Paul warns us that salvation is a gift and it can't be earned, in verse 10, he says this, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So Paul is saying right away, yeah, salvation is a gift, but you can still do good works. I think what Paul is saying is that you can do all sorts of good things. You can become trustworthy. You can become faithful. It's just that those things won't save you. The only thing that will save you is God's grace. The second apprehension to accepting this idea that, that uh, we can become faithful uh, people is a similar concern. And it's this worry that if I'm pursuing a, a faithful character, I'm trying to be trustworthy, maybe I'm trying to earn God's love. And I think that that might be true for a lot of people. They might be trying to earn God's love. In fact, I think on some level, it's probably true for all of us. I think we all, in a sense, want to please God and we all want to earn God's love. And, and that's something that all of us have to work ourselves out of. Uh, but different, to different levels for different people. I, I've met people who who grew up in families where love was used like a, a leverage lever. And, and uh, kids in those families would only receive love and affection if they met rigid expectations within the family. And what happens when kids grow up in that type of environment where love is used as a lever like that, they think that God is the same way and that in order to get God's love, I have to be obedient. And, and if I'm not doing well morally in my life, I got to just kind of stay away from God. And, and, and that's, that's pretty natural. But God's love is nothing like that. God's love is not manipulative. God does not manipulate with his love. God pours his love out constantly. We see this over and over and over again that God loves us even when we rebel. God loves us even when we sin. God loves us when we have 
nothing to offer. Romans 5, 8 says that God loves us when we're at our very worst, when we're still trapped in our sin. Uh, And so God loves us when we have nothing. And when we do nothing, he still has that profound love. But I love how thrilled God gets when we give just a little bit of effort. (laughs) When we give just a teeny little bit of effort, God just gets tickled with that. And I just love it. Check this out. This is in uh, Acts the book of Acts chapter 17 and um, there's a few verses here. I'm just going to read the bookends. Uh, from uh, chapter 24 to, I'm sorry, from verse 24 to verse 27. It says that God made the entire world and everything in it. Why did God do this? Well, let's jump to verse 27. God did this so that people would seek him and maybe reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any of us. So, what, what Paul is saying is that God did the entire cosmos. He made this entire expansive universe and the Big Bang and the billions of years of, of just tumultuous physics and explosions and this long process of evolution, which we're at the very tippy-tippy end of. He did all that in just the hopes that we might just seek God and maybe just reach out for him a little bit. That's, he, the whole thing was made just for that little bit of effort and that, that pleases God. I just love the, how low the standards are. I'm a guy who likes low expectations, you know, and that's, that fits really nice. Uh, uh, Psalm 53, 2 says that God is always looking down for people who are seeking him. Uh, I think it's the message. I should have looked this up last night. I forgot. I think it's the message that translates that verse as God is looking down for people looking up. And I I just love how how that's translated. God loves us as we are. Absolutely. And he showers us with mercy in our sin and our failure. And we hear this all the time, that God's grace is just so powerful. And I'm glad we hear that all the time because it's so important. But a God who loves us that much, of course, that God would also want to compel us to be something more than our sin and our failure. I mean, obviously. And that's what we see in the Bible. Yeah, he loves us when we have nothing. Uh, he accepts us when we're empty. But he also nurtures, nurtures us to be full. Uh, he, he accepts us when we're empty. He nurtures us to be full. Of course, a God of love would do both of those. Uh, the third the third concern that keeps people from accepting this idea that people can be faithful is uh, that if you're pursuing trustworthiness and faithfulness, you could easily slip into a type of spiritual perfectionism. Uh, and this is a legitimate concern also. I, I, I think that our, our attempts at discipleship and our spiritual journey can easily devolve into like these self-centered kind of journeys of inner discovery and inner transformation that kind of lead to this uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind uh, kind of self-obsessed sort of spirituality. And, and I think that's a legitimate concern. And I know it is because it's me. I am particularly vulnerable to this spiritual sickness. I know I am. And it's something that uh, when I realized the spiritual sickness, uh, it was so liberating that I could start to make moves out of it. Uh, you know, we're all kind of constrained in this culture that we're in here and, and we call it a, a, an individualist culture. Uh, it's, it's a culture where the individual self is, is sort of prioritized over the group as a whole. Other cultures are the opposite. Other cultures are kind of collectivist cultures where the whole is prior, prioritized over the individual. But here, we're, we're as individuals prioritized over the whole. And that's kind of where we all grow up in, in this kind of do-it-yourself sort of culture. And there are benefits to that, but there are also constraints that affect our spiritual growth and our potential uh, to be Christ-like. Um, 
you know, I, the, how I grew up, you know, with my mom, who was just such a, a model of dedication and uh, perseverance. And, you know, we had to move a lot in order to chase better opportunities. And she worked double shifts. She worked so hard for me. And uh, that left me a lot of time alone. And there's a lot of stuff in life that I sort of figured out on my own. And that's really great. And it kind of gives me a, a, a spirit of independence. And it gives me a confidence that I can figure things out. But it also nurtures this kind of spirit that's not so good. It can nurture a spirit that I don't need anybody else. I just need myself. I don't need anybody else. And, and so in that spirit, I, I read things like Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I hear that, and I'm like, yes, Lord, I will. And I throw myself into these deep contemplative episodes of self-examination all by myself. <laughs> and that really good things can come from that, absolutely. But if you only have that, uh, it can be limiting. If you only have this self-examination and this inner work, it, it can become very self-oriented and very internal and very isolated, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of God's plan for us here. God's plan for us here is that we might find unity in the body of Christ. We might connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ and form this, this oneness body that Greg talked about uh, last week. And, and uh, self-orientation, internalized, isolated selves, that's the, the antidote to what God wants for us. And so <clears throat> spiritual growth, I think, ultimately has to result in something relationally beautiful. It can't just be this inner transformation. We can grow, and this is, I think, just so fascinating. We can grow toward perfection in trustworthiness and faithfulness. I think we can make genuine steps in that direction. But here's the catch. The measure for how this is going in our lives, it's not inside of us. It's not inside of us. It's between us. That's how God measures how things are going in our spiritual walk. Uh, this is part of the beauty of the checks and balances of God's revelation is there's always a danger in one or two ways and there's always a check or a balance to guide us back on the right path. Uh, you see this throughout the Bible. When God is assessing how humanity is doing, he doesn't look at how peaceful we are inside of our hearts. He looks at how our relationships are. How are the poor being treated? How are the fatherless being treated? How is the uh, orphan being being treated? How is the immigrant being treated? How, that's, how, that's what he looks at. He doesn't look inside of us. He looks between us. And that is sort of a check and balance against this temptation to make your discipleship and your spirituality totally internal. When Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, he's not talking about the perfection that we see in the world, this kind of cheap sense of perfection where people are striving for the, the perfect body weight and the lowest body fat and the quickest wit and the right friends and the right style and all of these kind of meaningless things. That's not the perfection he's, he's calling us to. When he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, the key word there is therefore. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. The therefore connects us to what comes before. It tells us that this verse is the conclusion of everything that came before. And when you look at the verses that come before this, Matthew 5 verses 1 to 47, what you find is Jesus teaching his disciples how to treat one another, how to treat those you hate, how to remain loyal to one another, how to carry out justice. These are all social metrics. 
social metrics. These are all social measurements. Uh, and, and, and so this perfection is social. It's not some internal thing. Uh, in fact, perfection on this level, based on these measurements, it might even diminish personal achievement. Because if I'm spending all my time seeking some inner transformation and personal peace, that's less time than I could be spending reconciling with my neighbor or uh, forgiving people who I need to forgive or confessing to people who I need to confess to. And so that's just the beauty of, of um, discipleship in Christ is there's all these checks and balances and um, it's a beautiful thing. Ultimately, the perfection that Jesus is calling us to, the spiritual growth that God compels in us, it ultimately leads to bonding with our brothers and sisters. It leads to the second theme that I see in Ruth, and that is solidarity. And, and solidarity, you see this in the book of Ruth where the first thing I thought from my individualistic reading is how happy Naomi was for this child. And I thought, it's not even her child. It's, in fact, it's Ruth's baby, and Ruth is not relative by blood, and Boaz is not relative by blood. She, he was a relative of, of her former husband, and yet it fills her with so much fullness because she was living in a much more uh, unified situation than we are, and she was able to reap benefits in that situation that, that I can't even conceive of in my individualistic mindset. Um, the Bible calls us to be one body in Christ. And, and Galatians tells us that uh, in this body of Christ, a lot of the distinctions that we have, male and female and Jew and Gentile and slave and free, those just sort of dissipate in the body of Christ. And there is this sense of oneness that is, is exactly the same as the Trinity, John says in John 17. He says that, that we are going to be one in the same way that, that God is one. In the same way that God has this profound oneness, that's what Jesus prays that we will have as well. And yet we still have our individuality in the same way that the Trinity does, but we also have this oneness. And that's the solidarity that we see glimpses of when we read Ruth. They're, they're not, you know, in Ruth, they're not where God is calling us to, but they're probably further down the river than we are today. Um, and we see Boaz, you know, when, when he sees Ruth, he says, this is a woman of noble character. He doesn't say that because he recognizes some inner spiritual transformation in Ruth. He sees how Ruth treats her mother-in-law. And that's when he says, this is a woman of noble character. And you see the connection between faith and this solidarity because Ruth makes this commitment to Naomi. And that commitment creates this bond between the two. And Boaz sees this unity between uh, Naomi and Ruth and he's drawn into that and now this bond grows. And I think that's how it works. Our faithfulness is sort of the fuel that leads to solidarity. Our faithfulness, our commitment to one another like this. Spiritual growth always yields relational fruit like this. Um, let me just leave with two takeaways and then uh, we will do the Q&A. The first one is uh, in reading this, this, uh, this story, I'm like motivated to make my spirituality more outward than I have in the past. I want my spirituality to be outward, not just some inner thing. Uh, I, I don't want to hoard my spirituality. I want it to be something that touches other people and creates bonding and unity opportunities. Uh, and so ways that you can orient your discipleship outward is look for people people in your life who you might need to forgive. Uh, look for people that you might need to reconcile with. Look for people that you might need to confess to. Uh, look for people that you might be able to build up who are feeling down. Or look for people that 
are starved for attention and that maybe you could just give some of your attention to that's so valuable for people. Uh, Look for people that you can make a commitment to. Now, we can't all commit to everybody like Ruth does. Uh, We just can't do it. But there's probably somebody in your life that you can commit to like that. Self-work is important. I mean, for a lot of things, you have to work on yourself before the relational stuff even makes sense. Uh, And that's definitely true for me. I'm in my 40s, and I'm still finding things that are problems in my character that's causing relational problems. And I need to work on those things for sure. But I think in our culture, we have a tendency to get lost in those personal things. We kind of get lost in the labyrinth of ourselves, and we never really move to that part where we connect with others and we bond with others. And, And God is calling us to that as well. So don't get lost in the labyrinth of yourselves, but seek opportunities to let your spirituality go outward to others. The second takeaway is to own your faithfulness. I I look at Ruth, here's this young lady in this traumatic situation, full of death, full of suffering, uh, in this male-dominated society, and she goes to this foreign country where women are treated like they're considered property. And and women aren't able to do anything that they want to do in life unless there's a man somewhere to bless them. And that type of, of male patriarchal system is so constraining. And not only that, the opening of the book of Ruth says that this whole story takes place during the time of Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, uh, I would recommend to be at least 16 years old to read this because it's pretty graphic. But you read the book of Judges and you see how horrible this time was. The Israelites were being led by these military bozos who were violent and who were just nasty, nasty people who didn't seek God. A lot of them didn't even know who the Israelite God was. And the people at this time were just in chaos. There's so much violence and uh, it's just such a dark time. In fact, there are a lot of people who have lost their faith in God because of what is recorded in the book of Judges. And yet, in that darkness and under those constraints, Ruth grows up like a flower of faithfulness. Like a flower in the concrete cracks. She just somehow finds a way to be faithful. Because Ruth owned her faithfulness. She did not let her circumstances dictate whether or not she was going to be faithful to God or faithful to the people in her lives. And that's just so motivating for me. Especially now in this time when we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. We don't know how this is going to affect the economy. There's so many unknowns right now and and it's scary. And so what I would encourage you to do and what Ruth has inspired me to do is to make a commitment right now that no matter what happens, I'm not going to let that dictate my faithfulness to my brothers and sisters and to God. And I encourage you to consider that as well. And also, if you fail in this attempt toward faithfulness, just commit now to just get back up because the Bible is full of people who fall and get back up and God just loves that. Um, You know, so many places in the Bible, uh, they relate to King David. There's always a mention of how this relates to King David, and Ruth is no exception. At the very end, it says that Ruth gave birth to this child named Obed, and this child was the grandfather of David. And, you know, David, just in the Old Testament, he gets all the awards. He gets all the Academy Awards. He gets all the attention. And it's like, six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, but it's King David. And every book of the Bible goes back to King David in some way. But when it comes to faithfulness, uh, King David was very hit or miss. He had his good moments, but he had some catastrophically bad moments as well. And for my money, the model of faithfulness in the Old Testament for me is Ruth. And I encourage you to consider that 
uh, in your life as well. We are going to transition to a Q&A period, and it's just going to take us a few seconds. During this time, think about this. Who in your life is God asking you to be faithful to in this way? Um, what are some things that you can do for that person in your life? Thanks. We're back. Uh, I am with our teaching and outreach pastor, Oshita Moore, and with our teaching pastor, Paul Eddy. And we're going to do a Q&A, and we already got some questions coming in, so this is really great. And I'm going to start off with uh, a short one. Let's see. Why was Ruth allowed to marry Boaz with her being from Moab? Why was she even allowed to marry Boaz? I have an answer to this one. You do? Go ahead. Yes. Go for it. It's interesting that um, uh, Boaz uh, uh, didn't have the first right to marry her. And th- again, this is, this is the male-dominated culture where women were property, where men had certain rights toward women. And, um, and that's just how the culture was, and, and it sucked for women. But, uh, you know, Ruth and Naomi, they kind of made the best of it. And when uh, Ruth told Boaz, I would like you to marry me to redeem the family, he first had to go to somebody else and say, you have first rights at this. Are you willing to do this? And he rejected rejected Ruth because she was a Moabite. But see, Boaz saw her character. And just because she was a Moabite, he's like, hallelujah. I'm glad you said no, because this woman is fantastic. And he ended up uh, saying, yeah, I'll, I'll marry you. So that's how that all unfolded. Let's see. Um, I think I'm going to direct this one to Oshida. Oshida, what do you think solidarity is exactly? Yeah, so solidarity is, in short, the ministry of presence. So it's showing up for someone or for a group of people for whom life feels unstable or unsafe or they feel ignored. And it's showing up by offering your presence to create some sort of stability and protection and belonging and love. Um, we look at Jesus and Jesus, Jesus' whole life and ministry, the incarnation is glorious and beautiful and we celebrate it because that was a profound act of solidarity of God on our behalf, showing up yeah. and being on the scene because God wanted to create stability and protection and a space for love. And so when we think about solidarity, I know some of us kind of are apprehensive, apprehensive by the idea of solidarity because it's been so connected to like political ideas mm-hmm. or politics. But if you think about it, so many of us practice solidarity in our lives every day and we don't even think about it. Like think about this. You're driving in a neighborhood and you notice somebody slowing down and they're kind of holding up traffic because they're looking around. And you immediately think, oh, they're lost. Poor thing, they're lost. That's solidarity. Mm-hmm. In the middle, in, in the midst of this like COVID-19 reality, I have a 13-year-old who has been struggling with insomnia pretty badly because um, she has some anxiety issues. And so she has been, the first couple of weeks of um, 
the first couple of weeks of us being on lockdown, she's been trying to navigate her own insomnia by herself, and she's been um, increasingly like stressed out and overwhelmed and cranky, like really cranky. <laughs> And so what I decided was I was going to be a part of her evening routine and I would just be with her until she started to feel tired. And so that sometimes means that I'm like up at one or two o'clock at night watching Sister Act or some or High School Musical 3 or like whatever she wants, just because I wanted her to know that you're tired and I'm going to be tired with you and we are in this together. So that is what solidarity is. And that's exactly what Ruth was showing to Naomi when she said, your people will be my people. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to take on your reality, your mm -hmm. pain, your experiences um, as my own because I don't want you to be in this alone. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Really good. Mm -hmm. uh, I could watch Sister Act for the sake of solidarity. <laughs> it's a good movie. But like, not High School Musical 3. <laughs> no, probably not. That's, that's a, a bridge too far, I think, for me. So, um, let's see. I'm going to throw one to you, Paul. Uh, do you really think that God's trust in us is any way like our trust in God. Aren't these two totally different things? Oh. Uh -huh. I mean, I think you're right when you were showing in your sermon that the idea of God trusting us initially strikes us as strange. We're so used to this idea that we can trust God. Yeah. What makes us think like he could trust us? So are they the same thing? Well, I, I, I think there's some similarity, but there's also some difference. I'd say the similarity is that in in any act of trust, of, of relational trust, what trust is, is um, having confidence in one's partner. Um, the, the difference, though, is that our trust in God, when we trust God, we're trusting in a partner who is perfectly faithful, right? What does it mean, then, for God to trust us? <laughs> I, I take a cue from this about what it must be like for God to trust us from, from an act of marriage. Imagine when Kelly and I, my, my wife, married 31 years ago, we stood in front of our, our family and friends and we said, we made these crazy promises to each other in front of witnesses. We said we would love each other in sickness and health, better or worse, richer or poorer, like basically saying in, in any circumstance, till death do us part. And the love we were talking about was like agape love, like self-sacrificial agape love. What were we doing there? Could we trust each other for that? As I look back on that now, what I think, we're, what I hope we were doing, honey, <laughs> is uh, we were making promises that were aspirational in nature, right? That day, I was promising something that would take actually both of us a lifetime to live into and to become. So in the midst and along the way, there's been times of failing in that, of being forgiven in that, of forgiving in that, of we grow into the promises we make. And I think that's how God's trust works in us. I think God's trust in us is aspirational. Mm. He aspires to bring us to be the kind of people that are trustworthy. Mm. But as you pointed out, Dan, every little step that we make in that just absolutely thrills God, mm. uh, which is really the same thing you see in a marriage as you grow in a marriage. Yeah. I, I think God's trust is aspirational. Mm. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Uh, all right, this is a jump ball for both of you. Uh, what exactly does it mean to be faithful to God? Uh, what exactly is God expecting from me? Uh, no, go, you go ahead. Me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. If we think covenantally in this, right, because as you pointed out, Dan, very accurately, both the terms faith and faithfulness are covenant terms, right? So if we understand the dynamics of covenant, I think we, we have an answer here. What 
faithfulness is, is you said it in your sermon, to be responsive to the terms of that covenant. So we have to know what are the terms of the new covenant that we share in Jesus. In the old covenant, the covenant of the Old Testament, there were 613 terms, the Old Testament law. That's a lot to keep track of. The good news for us in Jesus Christ is that in, um, it was Matthew 22, Jesus was asked one day, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, actually, I can summarize all the 613 with just two. Radically love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these depend all of the other laws. I think those are the two terms of the new covenant. Radically love God, and because of God's love, for us, through us, we radically love others. It's just that simple. And so what I think God's trusting us for is that our lives would be not oriented to self, that satanic thing you were talking about, self-orientation, but rather oriented outwards to God first. And because of God and his love that flows back to us from that, just rebounding and ricocheting then to others as well. That's what God, and it's all about the relationships that you were talking about. It's, it's all about love, really. Yeah. Hmm. It's good. Well, I mean, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that what God is asking us is to believe that God is good mm. and that God is for us. Mm. And so I think that it's hard for us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and ra radically love God that way and then radically love others if we are not even sure in the yes. beginning yeah. who God is yeah. and that God is for us. Mm. And so I think what God is asking is, God, like, believe me, like, mm. I'm here, like, mm. I love you. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a very, like, the first step that God's just like, hey, like, that's what I'm asking. And when you receive that love, then, then you want to engage with me more and go deeper into yes. this relationship. And then you want to go love others because you've opened yourself to, up to receiving that love. Yeah. So just be open. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I think that, that's so important because when you see the very first fall in the garden, right? They don't fall until they first believe that, that lie of Satan. Is God really that good? Did God yes. say, right? Yes. So you're right yeah. on, Oshita. It's If we don't trust God, mm. everything else falls. Right. Okay. All right. This is um, an interesting question. I'm excited to hear what you think of this. Uh, reading the book of Ruth, um, you know, Ruth is very forward toward Boaz, and it seems to suggest that it's totally acceptable for women to ask men to marry them. And um, <laughs> what do you think about this? <laughs> is that okay to, for women to be this forward uh, in, in uh, relationships? Good child. I'll let you go first. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, hey, there's cultural issues, right? Uh, no, it is true in the ancient world that most marriages were arranged, hmm. right? They're arranged um, by your father, usually, if you're a young woman. But here's the case. As you point out, uh, Dan, there are no men left in, hmm. in Ruth's life. No father that she's with in Bethlehem. Um, there's only the two women. And so what we do know is in that culture, when a woman didn't have that protection, uh, there was some more flexibility in the culture to take initiative in those moments. And I think we see Ruth doing that. Mm. Um, but I suppose even to this day, with the way male-dominated society works, uh, we still wonder, like, are, are women staying in their place in this regard? Mm. Um, you know, let, let's go back to Genesis on this. I love the fact that the very first mention of humanity, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, I will create them in my image, male and female created in his image. That bespeaks equality and 
the, the shared blessedness and dignity of being human together. I think she's just acting on God's call in her life, and she knows that uh, she's dignified with humanity and worth. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Two more questions. Uh, the first one is for Paul. Let's see. Uh, let's see. I think we did that one. Oh, yeah, no, I did that one too. So let me do this. Um, Paul, do you really think that God can be surprised when a person acts unfaithfully? If God was certain this person would be faithless from the foundation of the world, can a person really, can, can God really be surprised at the faithlessness of, of people? That's a great question, Dan. Um, <laughs> next question. <laughs> so here's the problem. You just asked me that question, and I know Greg Boyd is watching this, all right? Uh, Greg, I love you, brother. Uh, Greg, if he was sitting here, would say, of course it's possible for God to be surprised. Uh, because Greg holds this really interesting idea called open theism. Um, Greg and I have this little debate on this matter. Uh, but even though I do think, a little differently than Greg on foreknowledge, I still think God can in a sense be surprised. Greg would say God can like totally, obviously be surprised just like us. Um, I would say, uh, even if God does perfectly foreknow the future from all eternity past, that there's a difference between cognitively or theoretically knowing it and actually experiencing it in that moment. So when, when God, your examples today, when God sees the unfaithfulness of people, that's what surprises him. There's something about experiencing something palpably and in the moment that's different than this theoretical belief. So whatever belief you hold on foreknowledge, I think we can take this idea of God being surprised seriously. It was a very delicate answer. It was a, it was I, was try, I was dancing through a lot of landmines on that, on that particular question. Thank you for doing that. I'm going to ask one more question, but I, I want to say that uh, we have this this show on Tuesdays called the MuseCast, and we've got a bunch of really great questions here. So we're going to do some Q&A on Tuesday at 4 o'clock live on our YouTube channel. So check us out. You can also watch us afterward. And so whatever questions we don't get to here, we're going to try to get to some of those on Tuesday. It's, uh, the show is called the MuseCast, and it's me, it's going to be Oshita Moore, and it's going to be Shauna Bourne, and it's a fun time when we talk about the sermon and uh, a bunch of fun stuff from it. The last question I have is for Oshita, and uh, the question is, what does faithfulness look like now during a global pandemic? I mean, what, is it, what does it really mean to be faithful under these conditions, do you right. think? So I think that before we get to like the brass tacks of like what faithfulness would look like, I think we need to know what gets in the way of our faithfulness. Oh, that's good. So when we, when we imagine ourselves showing up solidarity, like being present for others, there is a, an instinct that a lot of us have where we diminish our capacity or our ability to do that. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough time. I, I don't have enough energy at three o'clock in the morning when your daughter wants to watch High School Musical. Like there are these narratives that pop up when God invites us into being faithful to someone else. Yeah. And all those narratives are rooted into, in scarcity, this, this idea that there is not enough. And right now, every time we open up in any type of news cast, like wherever we go to get our news, we are force-fed mm. scarcity. There's not enough masks. There's not enough doctors. Yeah. There's not enough testing. There's not enough time. And as kingdom people, we have to be hyper aware of that narrative of scarcity that we're being fed and say that's not the reality that we know. Mm. And we know that that's not the reality of the kingdom because 
prior to what you taught in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus spends, spends all that time teaching about the abundance, that, the potential abundance in our relationships, starting with the Beatitudes, which is this completely upside down way of us looking at the world that is root, that starts with those who think they don't have enough in this area, you are blessed because this is the, the, ab yeah. the abundance in the kingdom. Yeah. And so Amen. before we start imagining our specific practices of faithfulness, we have to be on guard for where mm -hmm. scarcity creeps in and then we have to speak words of abundance. Because then when we're able to do that, we can open ourselves up to the leading of the spirit and then we can create spaces of faithfulness for others. So some like real, real practical ways is uh, be aware of the pain, the cries for pain or the cries for help around you. I think we, there are so many people who even jokingly like check on your moms, your friends with toddlers. We are not doing okay. That's funny, but she's also crying out for help. So be aware of that and have, have a response, like have a text or have like invite her to have a phone conversation or whatever. Like the but that's an opportunity for you to be faithful to others. Um, I would say faithfulness to God would be like maybe reading the Beatitudes and asking God to give you an imagination for abundance. Mm -hmm. I mean, also following like health guidelines, that's a practice of yeah. faithfulness to others. Mm -hmm. um, but I deeply believe that the Holy Spirit is inspiring each and every one of us in our unique context because we're all experiencing this global pandemic differently mm -hmm. um, for what faithfulness could look and feel like. And I think it's really beautiful that when we finally get back together, we can share those stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Good, good word. Amen. Uh, thank you so much for sending in your questions. Again, whatever we don't get to now, we're going to try to get to on Tuesday. So check out the Musecast. And uh, Paul, would you close us in prayer? Yeah. Thank you. Actually, yeah, I just want to say thanks again to jo for joining us. And uh, before we close in prayer, just remind you about a few of the opportunities that are available this week. Um, for any of you who have any prayer needs, literally right after we end here in just, just a moment, uh, we'll have prayer partners who are absolutely ready and willing to pray with you. You'll see the link there right on your screen. So for any prayer needs, please, please uh, stick around and do that. Uh, speaking of prayer, we also tonight at 6 o'clock Central Standard Time, we'll be having an all-church online prayer gathering. We'd love to have you attend. It's just going to run from 6 to 6.45. Uh, there'll be a chance uh, both for us to pray for, for a little bit in a large group, but also to break up. Uh, we're going to be using Zoom, so we'll be breaking up into smaller groups for a, a smaller context for prayer together. Um, Dan, you mentioned that you, Oshida, and Shana will be on uh, the new newscast this yep. Tuesday at 4 o'clock, again, Central Standard Time. Chance to recap and uh, live Q&A with the sermon. We also, again, have the gathering groups that if you want a, some connection with the wider Woodland Hills family, literally around the globe. I was just um, on a class this week that I'm uh, team teaching and was uh, talking to students from Dallas and Boston, from uh, Florida, Kentucky, Tennessee. We even had a, a wonderful sister join us who braved the, uh, the time zone shift from New Zealand. And so a lot of opportunity to connect with our Woodland Hills family around the world. Our gathering groups are an opportunity to do that. And you can find out more about all of these opportunities at our website, uh, whchurch.org slash highlights. And um, let's close in prayer. Yeah. Father God, I would just thank you for this opportunity, for this slice of your body represented around this calling of Woodland Hills, Lord, to be together this morning. And just, God, ask your blessing, your blessing, your love, and your presence upon every person who was able to join us here today and every one of them who wasn't able to tune in this morning as well. Father, um, 
Well, so many things to lift up to you. We, we lift Greg's uh, continued healing up to you from the procedure he went through this week. Father, we lift up to you the safety, and we ask you would encourage, Lord, the tireless frontline workers, Lord, in this crisis that are so sacrificially serving the rest of us. Father, we ask for your wisdom for our, our leaders, God, who are making crucial decisions every day, both nationally and locally. Lord, give them your wisdom at this very unprecedented time. And Lord, in all of this, we ask that your will would be done here on earth and in every one of our individual lives, just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.